It is March 26th. Our topic is called Lifted. The kingdom is full of difficulty. It's full of struggle. It's full of hardship. And it's full of glory. I love the fight. There's life in it. When you think of the topic lifted, different things come to different people's minds. I want to cover a few of them with you. Let's start with our first picture. It turns out that we got a sneak peek of the Arius Air sonogram. And uh, when I say lifted, you might think of a picture kind of like this. Or maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you may, your mind may go to the next one. This may be what you're thinking. This is, of course, the uh, ultimate expression of what we wish to do to our missions truck in the church. Or, or maybe it's more like this. This uh, apparently was... I instructed the pastor's wives to teach out of Titus 2 of older women instruct the younger women. And somehow or another this made it into the material. Maybe that's not it. Maybe that's not what you think of when you think of lifted. Maybe it's... This, this showed up in one of our elders' meetings. I don't know that I understand it. but uh, Or, of course, there could be this one, which uh, is apparently what our youth group thinks of when we think of the term lifted. You know, when you see those pictures and you think, how could pastors do that... Uh, you're aware that Google is the most popular search engine in the world, right? And uh, it keeps track of what you search the most, right? So the next slide shows what comes up when you put in lifted. Weights, trucks, whatever that next word is, whatever the next two words are, <laughs> and a car. And um, it turns out that you think of many things, but you may not be thinking about it like the Bible speaks of lifted. Actually, our second search term from Pastor Sutherland's computer, which is, of course, more anointed and spiritually adept, the seventh result was how to lift a curse. The seventh most searched term for lift was how to lift a curse. Uh, I want to show you what the word lifted is in the Newer Testament in the Greek, which is our next slide. So, hupso. When you see this, it's, it comes from a word that means to elevate. The King James almost universally translates this word exalt, although sometimes it's lifted up. You can see in that next paragraph that while it means generally to raise to a condition of prosperity, dignity, and honor. Does that surprise you? You know, this is like uh, I, I expect Josh Groban to come out any moment and sing your love lifted me, you know. Uh, when the Bible speaks of lifting up, when it speaks of exaltation or hoopso, it has to do with changing your condition to something that is prosperous, something that is full of dignity, something that is full of honor. You can see in the middle of that paragraph, either in external prosperity or more especially in respect to the privileges of the gospel. That's an interesting thing. Now, you know that the Older Testament was written in Hebrew, but the oldest manuscripts that we have available to us are in Greek. It's the Greek Septuagint, referred to by scholars as the LXX or the 70. I want to show you the way in which this Greek word, 
shows up in the Older Testament and begin to build a picture for you of what lifted means and how it relates to your life. Would that be all right? Even if it's not all right, is what we're going to do. Amen. I'm back. Which means, uh, brace yourself. <laughs> Amen. Let's go to Genesis 7. In Genesis 7, say there when you were there. In Genesis 7, our setting is the judgment, the destruction, the death of most of humanity. But it is also a setting of salvation, dignity, and honor for eight people and all. Look at Genesis 7 and chapter, uh, chapter 7 and verse 17. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, say the waters increased. The waters increased. They lifted the ark high above the earth. The very same thing that was killing human beings... The very same thing that was wiping out all life on the planet was also lifting the ark and rescuing eight people who were faithful to God. So judgment for some, destruction for some, death for some, but salvation, dignity, and honor by the very same device for others. Man, this will make you not know how to look at a situation. Is this a terrible situation or is this a wonderful situation? Many times the Bible presents us with this scenario. The death of something innocent, terrible, but that innocence saves you. That's an incredible truth in the scripture. What we're going to do is move from the law to the prophets to the writings. One of the very first instances of lifted in the Bible, hoopso in the Bible, is the ark, and it was very specifically lifted by the increase of the judgment waters. Oh man, are the waters rising in your life? Maybe you feel like they're up to your nostrils. Maybe you're not sure sitting here this morning whether it's for your death and destruction or your salvation, dignity, and honor. Maybe the end of your story is not written yet. But the Bible makes us very special promises about those who trust in the Lord. They are never put to shame. No matter how high the waters get, no matter how difficult and deep the despair is, the very same water that the devil meant to kill you very well might be the tool that causes you to rise above your situation. 1 Samuel, the second chapter. Say there when you're there, this is a book of the prophets, 1 Samuel. We're going to be discussing Miss Hannah. In 1 Samuel, the second chapter, our setting, the humiliating state of barrenness, the rejection of Hannah by the priesthood, the ridicule of Hannah by the rival wife. Come on, ladies, let that one settle in on you for a minute. Somebody say rival. Rival Rival wife. Anybody feel good about that? I mean, just the mention of the term causes my wife to get a little hot under the collar. A rival wife. 
and then ridiculing you from something that's outside of your control has to do not with something you did wrong, but with something you cannot do right. Oh, my. How difficult that must have been. Of course, when the Lord gives her Samuel, when she receives that which was promised, look how Hannah prayed. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My horn is hoopso. It's been raised to a position of salvation, dignity, and honor. Horn in the Bible represents your authority. It is uh, who you are and how you carry yourself as designed by God. Now that God has come through for her, she can see clearly that what was meant to discourage her What was meant to destroy her, the very device that the devil hoped to defeat her with, became the instrument that lifted her on high. Hannah goes on to do something that nobody else in her time did. Nobody else in her uh, peer group understood. And she does it in this chapter with another use of the word hoopso. Look at verse 10. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now at first glance, because we're reading this in English, it may not strike you quite the same way. But in Hebrew, this clearly says, He will give strength to his Melech. Melech is the king, speaking of the king of Israel. And exalt, hoopso, lift up the horn of his Mashiach. This is the first time in all of the Bible that we see Melech and Mashiach in the same sentence. The first time in all of the Bible that the king and the Messiah are joined as one person. And who got the revelation? Hannah. When she came right out of what looked like a barren, judged, diminished state. And the Lord lifted her using that very device to teach her specifically. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. She learned an amazing revelation about the Lord through the depths of her own struggle and distress and despair. Oh, man. What revelation is the Lord trying to work into you right now? Hebrews 13 says, May He work into you what is pleasing. His good, pleasing, and perfect will, Paul says in another place. The Lord will work into you the things that He wants as a part of your life. You cannot be lifted if you are not in a place that you need to be lifted from. That was the law and the prophets. Let's move to the writings. Go to 1 Chronicles. Say there when you were there. 1 Chronicles, the 17th chapter. One must wonder about Hannah. 
when she felt prospered, when she felt dignified, when she felt honored, would she have ever felt that way had there not been an original promise, or original problem rather? Would she have ever gotten there without the adversity that helped to bring her there? Would she feel herself free from the miry clay if she had never been in the miry clay? Would she feel herself having passed the test if she was never tested? In 1 Chronicles 17, starting in verse 16, Then King David went in and sat down before the Lord, and he said, I love the word then in the Bible. (laughs) It's at a point in David's life that is not the beginning. It's a place that the Bible simply calls then. Let's put it into perspective. Some things that have already happened to David. Right? David has already had his struggle with Goliath. He has already had his own brothers accuse him of having a wicked heart. He's had his own father and mother overlook him and not consider him even worthy to bring to the prophet. In Psalm 27, his father and mother have forsaken him. These things have already happened. His own sons have already rebelled against him. He's already had to fight with his own sins of adultery and murder. Then David goes in and prays. Who am I, O Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? Oh man, what a prayer. When you know the depths of your own state, when you know where you stand then you can look at some point in the future back and go look at how far you have brought me, Lord. I've noticed something about people in recognizing their own state. The man who is unrighteous thinks himself righteous. And the man who is righteous often struggles with feelings of unrighteousness. We are absolutely terrible of determining our own state. If you're a blessed person, God will have put people around you that love you enough to tell you what you cannot see about yourself. And one thing that I have noticed about all men, we are universally blind to our own behavior. It takes the piercing word of God and the anointed servant of God just to begin to make a dent. And then of all of the most resilient skills that men have, we justify whatever we want. It's just the truth. The Word of God will disarm you. It will cut those things away from you. It will show you your true state so that like David, you can look back and say, Oh Lord, who am I that you have brought me this far? Some have benefited by Christ and become self-intoxicated. Others have been blessed by Christ and full of merciful uh, dealings towards them and they've grown numb and cold. Do you know your own state in here this morning? Are you closer to the Lord than you've ever been? And on what do you base that assertion? Is it a feeling that you woke up with this morning? Is it a sober judgment of your own life? Or do you hang at the very edge of falling away from the faith And you haven't even noticed, like Samson. See, we are often completely unaware of the rising judgment waters until it reaches our nose. God wants you to be aware of your state. The reason that you're in the situation that you're in is so that you can call upon Him and get His direction. 
so that he can lift you from where you are at to where he wants you to be so that you can look back and say, who am I that you would have brought me thus far? You know, I thought I could see pretty good until I went to the ophthalmologist. He said, you've never had a prescription before. I said, no, I've never had a prescription before. He said, how did you get here? I said, I drove. He said, you're leaving here with a prescription or you cannot drive home. I had no idea that I wasn't seeing well because I had nothing to compare it to. But as soon as I put on that new set of glasses, I went, oh, wow. I mean, I knew there were leaves, but I didn't know there were leaves. It explained my entire high school football career. I bid on every fake. I tackled everybody who did not have the ball. They eventually put me on offense just so I didn't have to determine who had the ball anymore. I said, give him the ball. Then he'll know where it's at on the field at all times. You don't know what you can't see. So God's word is a mirror that reflects to you your true condition. Listen to me. I love Spurgeon's daily devotional, but that is not the mirror. I love good anointed preaching, but it's not the mirror. Your personal interaction with the word is the mirror. If everybody that you know was shouting at you, it's possible that you just know bad people. Or it's possible that you might need to listen. If your circumstances are shouting at you, ask yourself, what could God use to get my attention at this point in life? I was preaching at a church in another state. And uh, I said, maybe God has lit your fields on fire because you've refused to come to him. I stopped and went, I can smell barley burning in this room. An older couple got up, stomped out of the room, left the church that day. How could I be so insensitive as to have called out their personal situation because their fields had actually been set on fire that week? What would it take to get your attention? If God can't shake you with your home, if he can't shake you with your job, if he can't shake you in your personal relationships, where could he shake you? If your world consists of you, a lazy boy, and a television set, maybe the best he could do is cause your cable to go out. I mean, I I don't know what it takes to get through to some people, but I know that those that are searching the Word daily constantly see themselves reflected in the Word and you see the need to make correction. The man who is close to the Lord is always repenting. Repentance is not something that was in the past. It is a daily, regularly, hourly kind of event. Always be course-correcting because I assure you your natural bent is always wrong. The way that you would carnally choose your most natural choices in life are almost always totally wrong. The spirit is contrary to the flesh and the flesh contrary to the spirit. You cannot please both of them. But your obligation is to the spirit according to Romans 8. David says, 
Who am I, O Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were the most hoopso, exalted of men, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. God had a will for David's life. It was full of adversity. David was a shepherd in the field and lions and bears attacked his sheep. David was in the court of the king and the king threw spears at him. David was in the valley where there were giants and fought with a man that nobody else wanted to fight with. When David was king over Hebron, he was contending with the northern kingdom under Saul's control. When David united the kingdom, he was contending with his own sons who wanted to overthrow him. David's life was full of adversity. And that adversity caused him at the end of his life to look back and say, Look how high you have lifted me. You have treated me like the most exalted of men. In fact, the Messiah in Jewish thought is a Davidic king. This is what they said to Jesus in Matthew 21. Hosanna, son of David. He was treated as the most exalted of men even though the waters of adversity were deep around him at all times. What an amazing God that we serve, that he can use adversity as a teacher, that he can use opposition to refine you for the kingdom. What an amazing God that the very club in the devil's hand that was meant to destroy you becomes the instrument of the devil's defeat and your salvation. Oh, the mystery of God. He's beyond understanding with the carnal mind. David was raised from judgment, death, and humiliation to salvation, dignity, and honor. This story is not unique to these three instances. I've not taken the time to go over Abram and Sarah's barrenness that allowed us to see the love, dignity, and honor of Isaac when Genesis 22.2 says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. That sentence would be robbed of all of its meaning if you didn't know the struggle that went into having Isaac. It is the very struggle to have Isaac that makes that sentence so special. And of course, it's the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. It has to do with the sacrifice of the exalted father's son. Oh, the depths of God's wisdom. I didn't take the time to go through Genesis 15, 13's promise. God says to Abram, know for certain. Say for certain. certain. If you're from Louisiana like me, you'd say for sure. For sure. You know for sure that your descendants are going to be enslaved and mistreated. Does that sound like a good thing? Who would want that? No wonder the patriarchs were scared to go to Egypt. No wonder Jacob didn't want to go hang out in Egypt. But he says after that, I will punish the nation they served as slaves and I will bring them out into a land flowing with milk and honey. When you consider that promise, 
it gives the enslavement in Egypt, Egypt scope. You understand that the 400 years of mistreatment were so that the people would hunger for a Messiah, cry out for a Messiah, and to show God's mercy in bringing one nation out of another. There's nothing that is happening to you. Not now, not tomorrow, not in the past. Is without purpose. How many of you can quote Romans 8.28 in the room? For in all things, God works together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. So much easier to quote than it is to live. It does not say that all things are good. It says in all things, God works together for good. There is nothing that can happen to the Christian that God will not use for his good. There is nothing that can happen to the lost man that God is unable to use for his good. He's just under no obligation to. But if you love the Lord, whatever comes into your life, rain or shine, God is using for your good. The floodwaters that destroyed the world floated the ark. It's really a matter of where you stand, isn't it? Standing outside of the ark was destruction. Standing inside the ark, it was salvation. Where do you stand with the storms of life? Are you standing in Christ or are you leaning on your own arm destined to die with the rest of the worldly masses? How about Genesis 37's account of Joseph being thrown into a well? How deep was the well? I don't know, but it looked a lot deeper as the years went by. But that gives us scope for Genesis 41 when he's exalted to Zaphonath Paneah, the savior of the world. He went from the bottom of a well to the top of the world. What if the difficulty that you're experiencing is simply to give scope to the victory? Jonah. In Jonah 2.2, he says something to the effect of, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. How moving is that? He's literally in the belly of a great fish somewhere in the sea. Where you cry out to God from, does it matter? Well, it does to the rest of us here in the story. If he had been in a palatial palace, in the penthouse suite, being fanned and fed grapes, getting a neck massage, and he called out to the Lord, would that rob this verse of its power? What makes it special is that he's in the midst of the worst situation. I mean, look, I don't know how bad your situation is, but you haven't been swallowed by a fish yet. You may have been swallowed by some bad choices. You might be in the mouth of a bad choice right now. It's trying to digest you. But I know this. God is able to hear you from the depths of your bad choice. And he is able to restore you and lift you from that situation. Oh, man, when we talk about hoopso, we're talking about a total reversal of situations. We're talking about going from death to life. We're talking about going from the bottom of Daniel's lion's den, Daniel 6, to be lifted out of the lion's den in full view of the king who ordered your throne there. 
What if God put you in the situation that you're in just so that everyone else could see there's someone left who loves the Lord and it doesn't depend upon circumstances? Is that not what the book of Job was intended to be? 2 Kings 6.17, Elijah had a servant. The servant was terrified. Do you all remember why? Because they were surrounded by armies. If they weren't hopelessly outnumbered, if they weren't hopelessly surrounded, then it wouldn't mean as much to you that his eyes were opened in that situation and he saw the armies and chariots of God and there were more with him than with the enemy. See, it is your situation that determines the preciousness of the revelation that you receive. Maybe this is why the Christian life is marked with so many difficulties. Maybe this is why we need such a great Savior. We're in such terrible distresses. You know, the psalmist once almost slipped. He said he considered the way that the wicked behaved, how carefree their lives were, how easy everything was. And then he remembered their final outcome. See, it is very easy to look around and wonder why your life is so hard. Your life might be so hard so that God can lift you so high and you appreciate the difference between the two. Somebody say amen in the house of God. If you ever think that you had it really bad, consider a young woman named Hadassah. She's written about in our Bibles as Esther. You might have many problems, but nobody in here is a victim of genocide today. Her whole nation, her whole race was being wiped out so that she could come to the conclusion that she had been born for such a time as this and no longer care about her own life, but approach the king at all cost. Why have you come to the situation that you now face? What decision is the Lord trying to get you to make? In what direction are you supposed to move? Let me give you a hint. It always starts with repentance. Always. The point is that throughout the Bible, the very device used by the devil to discourage was in fact his own defeat and at the same time, the marvelous instrument of the salvation of God's people. That's an extraordinary God who can do that. Who can save Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah while judging Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an extraordinary God who can save you from the world while holding the world accountable for their sin. Let's take a look at Hoopso in the Newer Testament. It's used about 20 times in 16 verses. And I might need to remind you, the definition has to do with being exalted, has to do with physically being raised up, but also a changing in your dignity, a changing in your honor, a changing in your... Um, prestige. So when the Bible says hoopso, when it says lifted up, it's talking about more than just your physical location. Let's go to the book of John. Say there when you were there. We'll be in the third chapter. I've been amazed for a very long time in reading Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. This is one of the more quoted chapters in the Bible, and I'm convinced it's among the least understood. 
I think that our lack of Hebraic understanding as the background robs us of the true meaning of the verses. And the further that you go into studying God's Word, Older and Newer Testament, the more you begin to understand what is being said. And just to point to that for a minute, look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Do you remember what that statement is in response to? Nicodemus asked if he can get back in his mother's womb a second time. Like, how on earth can you be born again? Does Jesus' answer strike you as strangely vague? Like, is there anybody in here would like to write this moment uh, in 10 font, uh, single space, a one-page dissertation on exactly what that means with no outside aids? Yeah, not a hand went up in the building. You're like, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born in the Spirit. Oh, now I understand completely. Yes, yes, that you've unraveled the mystery of what it is to be born again. Now I've got it. Now, mind you, I'm not mocking Jesus. I'm mocking our lack of understanding of Jesus' words. Could you keep your finger here? Can you put Ecclesiastes 11.5 on the screen? See, Nicodemus had Ecclesiastes memorized, but that didn't mean that he knew what it meant. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, wasn't that Nicodemus' question? So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Isn't that a little bit like Jesus just slapped Nicodemus right in the face? Like, hey, how do I get born again? Can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus loosely quotes Ecclesiastes 11.5, knowing that Nicodemus had it memorized. You cannot understand the work of God. Now, follow that train of thought. Watch in uh, verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Look at Jesus' response, verse 10. You are Israel's teacher? Anybody like that pause? <laughs> you know... Do we have any school teachers in the room? One school teacher? Two? What's wrong? Y'all don't want to speak to me today? How can I ask, do we have any school teachers in the room? And you'd be like, undecided. Uh, You either do or do not teach school. If you teach school or have taught school, raise your hand. How many of you would like to have Jesus critiquing your teaching? Because Nicodemus has the five books of Moses memorized. He has the books of prophecy memorized, and he has the writings memorized, but he's come to Jesus, and he doesn't really know what they mean. And Jesus is smacking him around. He, he is literally mocking him with the phrase, yeah, you don't understand the wind. You, you can't understand what I'm telling you. And Nicodemus says, how can that be? He says, you're Israel's teacher? Israel's teacher, this member of the Sanhedrin, this Pharisee standing there, Israel's teacher is talking to Israel's king. And Israel's king has a level of understanding of the working of God that this Israel's teacher has not a clue about. Oh man, what do you think that you know about the Lord? How sure are you based on reading a doctrinal statement someone else wrote that you're okay? What you think you know and what happens when you are confronted with the awesome majesty of Israel's king 
often are at total odds with each other. In fact, most people genuinely meet Jesus for the first time when they come to grips with the fact of how little they actually know. How much tribal knowledge has obscured the true relationship they're supposed to have with the Lord. How much church life has taught them to sit in the house of God and lie without ever meaning to. Because they don't understand the things they've learned to parrot back as teachers. Are you following me thus far? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Man, this is going from bad to worse. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people, somebody say, you people. people. I don't know about you, but where I come from, when somebody looks at you and says, you people, it's getting close to, to fighting. Y'all come from kinder, gentler stock than I did. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up, hoopso, the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be hoopso. Lift it up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. I have to admit, I would have had a real problem with this. In what way is there dignity, honor, uh, prestige associated with a snake? That's a very confusing sign. What does it mean that the Son of Man would be lifted up just as Moses in Numbers 21 lifted up a serpent on a bronze pole? How on earth could that be a good thing? Remember what I was saying earlier about not knowing your condition? There is a man who has the Word of God memorized. And he's come to Jesus. And what's his opinion of Jesus? You remember how the chapter starts, anybody? Good teacher. So he has the Word memorized and he thinks highly of Jesus. How do you compare with that so far? I bet you think highly of Jesus but don't have the Word memorized. I bet you think that your highest goal would be to memorize more of the Word, to learn more of the Word, right? And yet he's standing in front of Jesus and he has no idea about his own condition. What Jesus is actually saying to him is Israel was being bitten by snakes. And to prove that they understood that they were sinning and dying, they needed to turn and look at a symbol of sin that was raised on a bronze pole. And if they would acknowledge that and turn from their sin, they would be healed. He's essentially telling Nicodemus, you are snake bitten right now. And don't know it. Until the Son of Man is lifted up. So the Son of Man will be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. The point was when you recognize your condition, then God will bring about a change in your condition. But He will not do it until you recognize the depravity of where you now stand. Nicodemus thought Jesus was good. He thought he was pretty good. He thought Jesus was a great teacher, and he was a pretty good teacher. He probably flaunted his position sometimes too because he didn't understand his true state before God. Oh, come on. Am I the only man in the room that finds that convicting as all get out? That it is possible to think very highly of Jesus, 
possible to have an understanding of the word beyond all of your peers so that they cause you, call you Israel's teacher, but be standing before Jesus snake-bitten and not even understand that you're dying. Oh, my. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus refers to himself as needing to be hoopso, lifted up. Now, as we read these, I think they get clearer and clearer. John will make a point to explain himself to make sure that his non-Jewish audience doesn't miss what is coming. Turn with me to John 8, 28 for the second occurrence in John. Uh, 8.27. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. In other words, you're looking at me and I am a regular, ordinary guy in your eyes. But when I am lifted up, when there is a change in my state, when God has raised me up, something will be different. You will have a revelation. You will know that the, the Greek text here actually says that I am He. What an incredible thing. You've heard of the seven I am statements in John? To say I am he is a unique way to say you will know me as God. Now, the reason for that is in Isaiah seven times from chapter 41 to chapter 51, God says in that day you will know that I am he and there is no other. In other words, in Isaiah there was a prototype. God had already said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And then in that day, you will know that I am He, and there is no other. One time He said, I am He, and I will not share my glory with another. I am He, and there is no God like me. In other words, I am uniquely divine. And in John 8, 28, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, you will know that I am He Another way to say it, another way to interpret it, you will know that I am uniquely divine in a way that the whole Jewish nation understood. It's why they wanted to kill him so often is because they understood him to be blaspheming. In the first passage, in John 3.14, when he was lifted up, it was so that we would believe and have eternal life. In the second passage, in John 8.28, when he's lifted up, we will know God in a different way. It seems that the more that Jesus describes himself as being lifted up, describes the state of change that he will go through, the more you will understand who he is. Now what happens as you're put in situations to be lifted up? Well, how sure do you think Noah and his family were that there was uh, an eternal God? Well, whatever their state was before the flood, they certainly believed after it. Oh, our, our second one, Hannah. Do you think that she knew God in a different way 
after her struggle than before her struggle. It turns out that every time Jesus describes being lifted up, he talks about an increasing revelation to humanity of who he is. And every time you're in a situation that God has to raise you up, lift you up, you have an increased understanding of who God is is why do we go through many trials toils and tribulations to enter the kingdom you wouldn't understand what you were entering if you didn't would you like to prove that go see pastor colgate and see what he's selling it's not the kingdom of god when you look at it it's sugary sweet it's nice as all get out it's got big teeth and a broad smile but it's not the kingdom that the bible promises see a tribulationless salvation, right? It's not much of a salvation. There's nothing to be saved from. Yeah? You ever read Psalm 91, get to the end of it and find out that it's in great distress that you call on Him and you are saved? I'm not speaking of an eschatological position. I'm speaking practically of your position today. If there's nothing to be saved from, you do not need the Lord. Maybe that's why you resort to selling him as an investment program. Since you don't really need the Lord to save you from anything, I tell you what, if out of your great benevolence and the goodness of your nature, you're generous towards God, he'll be more generous sevenfold towards you. That is selling an investment program. That is not salvation because you know your state and need God to save you. When Adam sinned, I know we teach that he was cursed. I know we hear all of those things. The truth is, is that the serpent was cursed and the ground was cursed for the sake of Adam. Adam lowered his station, but God did not slam Adam. Adam slammed himself. Adam suffered death because of his action, but the ground got cursed so that Adam would have a struggle, a tribulation and need his God and cry out to him so that when he was lifted up, he could look back and go, oh, what am I that you have brought me this far? I'm like the most exalted of men. So that he would begin to see Messiah as both Malak and Mashiach. So that he would begin to see that the very judgment waters that doomed him to death would also be his salvation if he cling to the Lord. You know, the third occurrence... In the book of John. And I'm preaching about this because a man named Ben Hefner at the church in Chicago, an elder there that I've come to love greatly. He's a thoughtful man. Uh, his wife is a worshiper of God. And from the moment that they fell in love with the Lord in Arkansas, they have set out to please the Lord. They ended up moving to Illinois. And they've experienced tribulation after tribulation after tribulation. Leaders have disappointed them. Things have not gone in the realm of men in the way that they would want, but their God has been faithful to them. And he sent me a passage uh, to meditate on right out of John 12, which is why I'm preaching about this today. And I want to read this to you, and then I'll read you something that Ben wrote to me and see if it touches you in the same way that it touches me. In John 12... Starting in verse 32. Actually, yeah, let's do it in 32 and then we'll back up. In 32. But when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The first time he mentions lifted up, it's that people might believe and have eternal life. The second time that he mentions it, it's that people would know God in a new way. Now the third time he says every man... 
will be drawn to him. Some will be drawn to him and be judged. Some will be drawn to him and be saved. But everyone will be drawn to him. The changing of the state of Messiah from something that is humiliating and debased to something that is glorified, that is dignified, that is full of salvation, that process puts the whole world on notice that there is a Savior that you can be saved, that there is a God and you can know Him, and every man will be held accountable for having witnessed that truth. That's an incredible thing. In your own life, the number of times that you're brought from death to life does the same thing for you. It first shows you that there is a God and that you can be saved. Where were you the day that you first cried out to Him? What did your life look like? I bet you weren't having your best life now. If you were, you wouldn't have cried out to Him. How many times has He saved you since? Has that increased the way that you know Him? It has me. Maybe that's what's wrong with teaching salvation as a one-time event where you get a USDA stamp because you repeated a prayer someone else prayed. I'm not sure that's salvation at all. That sounds more like infant baptism to me. Everybody in the world will be held accountable for this revelation of Jesus. <laughs> Consider what he's saying here, though, in this next sentence. You ready for it? It's kind of a doozy. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. I thought we were talking about hoopsa. I thought we were talking about salvation, honor, dignity. I thought we were talking about having your state changed from something humiliating, something debased, death, destruction, to something that was intrinsically better in every way. How can we use the word hoopso when indicating the kind of death Jesus would die? Is there anybody that looks at the cross and goes, oh, obviously, that's an improvement over the day before in the natural realm? This is what Ben Hefner wrote to me. You ready for it? He looks beyond the revolting externals to the inner glory and the ultimate triumph of it. With one word, he suddenly released its imprisoned glory, bathing all the ugly exterior in heavenly light. The cross is transfigured. Love remains supreme. Outwardly, we see the cross as a shocking injustice. Inwardly, we see the all-controlling, overruling sovereignty of God's purpose. When Satan believes he has won, he is defeated with his own device. Ben was reminding me that it was at a moment of humiliation that victory was actually won. That it was at a moment of injustice that actually the man was being lifted above all other men. That it was at the moment of greatest despair in his life. Why have you forsaken me? that we see the hand of God pulling him from a grave. Remember that Isaiah teaches us that it was God's will to crush him. Why are you in the trial that you're in? Was it one of your own making or did God ordain it for you? Is there a difference? In God's sovereignty, is there really a difference? Whether you're in trouble because you put yourself there or you feel very led into that trouble, the same Situation is the solution. You need a very great Savior. And maybe this moment 
of great injustice is actually the moment where you are lifted to a new realm. Oh man, something is wrong with a church that believes in being saved and that's it. Saved unto what? For what? The truth is, is you need to be saved many, many, many times. And every time the Lord reaches down and and helps you by lifting you, you not only know there's a God, but you know more about that God. You not only are drawn to Him, you want to draw others towards Him. When you consider this, it's incredible. If you back up in this chapter to the 24th verse and consider what they're talking about, You understand our basic misunderstanding of God's word. It's in full view right here. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The cross doesn't seem like glory. Your trials don't seem like glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces Many seeds. We find out that the kingdom truth is that there is a necessity of death that you might be multiplied. Why is the cross glorious? Because it is necessary that there be a death to multiply. It's necessary that you have a trial, a struggle to multiply the witness of God on the earth. If you don't have a trial, they will not see a salvation. How can we sit and pray for the lost and hunger for the lost and say we want to reach the world with the Great Commission and travel around the world in missions and hope to reach them with a problem-free gospel? Are you kidding me? How would they relate to that? Their lives are not problem-free. And yet, this is what our TV ministries have done. If you serve Jesus, you too can have this ridiculous jet, this ridiculous suit, and be a ridiculous man standing with a ridiculous message. That's what we're piping all over the world. And it's begun to infect us in the way that if you are actually suffering, if you are actually going through trial, you think something strange is happening to you. You think something is wrong. Something is unjust about this. Yes, this is an unjust world. We're here to change it. And it starts by the way you act when you're facing injustice. It starts with the knowledge that He will lift you. The same waters that were meant to drown you will float you to salvation. Oh, church, if you're in the mud, don't you wallow in it. Get up. Rise up. Say it with me. Rise up. up. Don't sit in your despair. Do not wallow in a defeat. Stand up. You are supposed to be hoopso, raised to dignity, raised to honor, raised to a place of prosperity, spiritually speaking. I don't need a bank account. I need my father's approval. I don't need a credit rating. I need the empowerment of the Holy Ghost. And if you have those things, whatever your circumstances are, you have floated above them. You walk on top of them. Like Oswald Chambers wrote about it, quoting David, you have the hind feet of a deer. You have ankles that will not turn. You run on walls. You advance against a troop. How can you be beneath and below if you understand the lifting nature of our God? The circumstances were just there to highlight 
the salvation. Tell me I'm not right when we think of the story of the man born blind in John 9. Was he this way because he sinned or his parents sinned? You know, it's like, is it option A or B? And you didn't know there was a C. You know what's very confusing about that? I mean, just to be totally honest, he sinned and his parents sinned. It's, a, it's not like their assumption is not right. Their assumption is right. The man sinned and his parents sinned. But that's still not why he was born blind. Why was he born blind, church? That the glory of God might be revealed. Why are you enduring a trial? Because you sinned or because your parents sinned? Well, let's be sure you're both sinners. But that's got nothing to do with it. You're enduring a trial that the glory of God might be revealed in you. He takes what is humbling, what is humiliating, what feels like it's going to kill you and He saves you from it and the world goes, there's a God and we can believe in Him. They watch you do it again and again and they say, there's a God and we can actually know Him. They see you do it again and again and they're drawn to that God. See, the evolution of this in the life of a believer is that the more he saves you, the more you want to see others saved. If you don't have a burning passion for missions in here, you don't have a burning passion for souls, I guarantee you he hadn't saved you quite enough because you haven't let him. Somewhere along the way, your salvation got a little stinky. Your grace got a little greasy. Your agape got a little sloppy. You are just coasting. You know what the cure is? little bit of trouble in your life. Maybe you've worked so hard to insulate your life from any trouble that it would take an actual act of God, natural disaster to shake your unshakable retirement, the comfort of your lazy boy. Or you could just open your Bible. And the shocking nature of the truth of God will show you your state. And you will grieve and beat your chest before God and hunger for righteousness. You'll be meek enough to inherit the earth because His Word will be shaping you. You'll see persecution as a blessing. When men revile and pray, you'll get excited. You'll be like, I'm going to be lifted up. Watch me now. When we look at John 3.14, we see hoopso. We see lifted up. When we see John 8.28, we see hoopso. We see lifted up. In John 12.32, we see hoopso lifted up. There are two other places in the book of Acts that hoopso occurred. And it furthers the revelation. I want to read those, then come back to John 12 for you. In Acts 2.33, let's put that on the screen. You can keep your finger in John. Okay, because we're going to be back in John. We're going to complete that thought. Exalted, hoopso, to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The fourth occurrence starting from John and moving forward in the Newer Testament of hoopso furthers the concept. The first time, it is that you can believe and know, have eternal life. The second time, it's that you can know God in a more intimate way. You can know that He is He. The third time, that all men will be drawn to Him. The fourth time, there's a hoopso occurrence. Jesus has been changed from the earthly to the heavenly. 
He's glorified. He's at the right hand of God and has received from the Father something for you. The very thing that will change your state. The power of the Holy Spirit. It was promised. It was promised in in Ezekiel 36. It was promised in Ezekiel 39. He was promised throughout the Word as the very thing that would help you in the midst of a trial. Cling to God's truth. He would be the Spirit that would remind you of the righteous requirements of the Lord who would make you new and carry you into the truth. Jesus being exalted, being hoopso, has given Him the chance to pour out the very thing that will change your situation. Tell me the truth. How full of the Holy Ghost can you be in the midst of your sin? But when you're made righteous and He fills you with His Spirit, His Spirit teaches you to turn away from sin. Every time the Spirit-filled Christian sins, he makes a conscious choice to grieve the Holy Spirit. Every time the Christian yields to God's Spirit, he is turned away from sin. Maybe this is why so many in the church world have so diminished the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Not only did you pray a prayer that somebody else wrote. And you didn't actually even say it. Somebody else said it for you. And you went... But now, in that moment that you courageously raised your pinky, you received all of the power of God that there is or that you'll ever get or ever have. A one-time experience with the Holy Spirit. You see how damaging that thought is? Number one, it's once and done. The the starting line is the finish line. It's all over. Sign, sealed, and deliver. Never mind the fact that, uh, that you're still wicked. Never mind the fact that there is no change. Don't believe your lying eyes. But then secondly, the despair of the person that believes that's all there is. I prayed at an altar. I became a Christian. And nothing in my life changed, so God must not work. Or you were sold a complete and total lie. And there is more. An ongoing relationship that lifts you out of not just being lost, but every situation where you lose your way. That will empower you from on high with what you can now see and hear in others. The promised Holy Spirit. Say see and hear. If you say that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and it can't be seen and heard, then you're not filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that the Bible calls filled with the Spirit. How about the fifth one? Acts 5.31. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Say prince Prince. and savior. savior. Oh my. He's not just a savior. He is a ruling king. He is both the Mashiach and the Melech, both the anointed of God, Messiah, and the King of Israel. God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to whom? The further you go in your trials with the Lord and being saved by them, the more you find out this is not about 
The first trial that he ever saves you from, you are so happy to be saved. You think that it's all about you and you can't see it any other way and that's okay. That's called a baby Christian. The second time you're in a trial and you get saved from it, you feel like you know him better, he knows you better and that's okay. You're walking on to maturity but still small in your faith. About the third time you get saved from an extraordinary life trial and he sets you on high again. You want to see all men drawn to Him. You start to focus outward. You can't help it. You're like, man, if I'd only known years ago, I'd have said more. I'd have done more. And the Spirit tells you, then do it now. You get saved from another trial. And then, just like our fourth occurrence, you start saying, Lord, I need more of Your Spirit. I need more of Your Spirit. Your Spirit is the power to walk this thing out. Your Spirit is the great evangelist. Your Spirit of holiness shockingly causes me to want to be holy. You keep progressing down that line of thought and then you begin to turn to the nations and you say, you are Israel's king first. You are Israel's Messiah first. And yet your gospel made it as far as me. Now I want to make sure that every nation hears. I want to make sure they all have the same access. I want to make sure that they all know. See, the occurrences of lifted up in the Bible, they will lift you up. Are you still in John 12? If you'll permit me, I want to take a minute to finish a couple misunderstandings in John 12, and then we'll move towards a closing. Pick back up in 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. From this you learn the necessity of death for multiplication. Your ministry will not grow unless you die. It's not going to happen. Period. So what does that mean? How could my ministry grow if I die? It was never supposed to be about you in the first place. The ever-narrowing way will require less of you and more of Him. You'll begin praying like John the Baptist. He must increase that I may decrease. Or I must decrease that He would increase. You understand that the more of you that is involved in something, you would never want your name on a sign if you understood the way the gospel actually works. You would never want yourself to be in the spotlight if you understood the way the gospel works. The biggest danger to the gospel is the own preservation of your life, the pride that causes you to see yourself as somebody. This is why Nicodemus is standing in front of of Jesus and cannot see the truth about himself. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is another secret in the kingdom. Loss is gain. And accumulation is loss. I'm not trying to speak to you in riddles. Jesus is not speaking in riddles. It is a truth that the more you lose for him, the higher he lifts you. Who is rich in faith? The more you lose, the more you gain. So why are we listening to a gospel of gain? It's like saying, please, make me poor in faith. Please, make me poor in faith. 
And they've so twisted that gospel that the more money you have, it's because of your great faith. What a devilish lie. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Not only do you have to die for the gospel to multiply, your ever-increasing loss is actually an ever-increasing gain. In verse 27, after wrestling with these truths, listen to what Jesus says. Now my heart is troubled. Are you troubled because of what you're having to endure? I've been a little troubled off and on lately. A little humbled by my circumstances, a little broken uh, by momentary trials. They're light and they're momentary. But in the moment, no matter how light and momentary you say it is, it's still what you're dealing with, right? Like you ever looked at a teenager and said, oh, it's just puppy love. It may be, but he's a puppy. And it's the only kind of love he's ever experienced. It's, it's maxed out uh, his emotions. It's, it's all he's got, man. So from your perspective, it's nothing. From his perspective, it's all there is, right? Light and momentary trials when compared with the end. But right now, it doesn't always feel so light and momentary. Jesus himself said, now my heart. Say, my heart. My heart, my heart is troubled. Friends, it's not sin to have your heart troubled over condi- the condition that you're in. That's, it's actually godly. In fact, the, the, the Beatitude says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed. When your heart is troubled, that's a good thing. I'm not concerned about the man whose heart's troubled. I'm concerned about the man whose heart is callous. And he can't feel the trouble around him. The depraved indifference that most people have. I'm concerned about Jesus said my heart is troubled. But Jesus also said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. You were born for this trial. You shouldn't want to be saved from it. You were born to be delivered through it. The heart of the church world is being challenged and it needs to be challenged. We have to stop saying, save me from this hour and start saying, it's for this hour that I came to this world. Islam's rising all around us. It's wicked beyond belief. It is repressive in a way. It's the most retrograde force on the planet and yet people are almost universally blind to its effects. They can throw homosexuals off of buildings and the gay and lesbian community doesn't notice. But if I won't bake a cake for their wedding, all the fury of that community comes down upon me for not baking a cake. Okay? I, I don't even want to go through it, but, but the lost are blind to what Islam is. And the church is indifferent to what Islam is. For this hour we've come into the world. We were born for this purpose. And it's not just Islam. It's Hinduism. It's not just Hinduism. It's Buddhism. It is humanism. It's whatever is blinding the masses from the truth that the Son of Man needs to be lifted up that He could draw all men to Him. They are snake-bitten and don't know it. 
They're dying in their sin and don't know it. We cannot sit around and act like the world is not going to hell. Jesus' heart was troubled, but his reaction was not to run from the trouble. It was to say, I was born to solve this problem. You weren't born to solve any problem. You were born as a part of the problem. But you were born again to solve this problem. So we sit in here in two groups of people, those who are not born again and are a part of the problem and those who are born again and need to take up the problem. Take it on. Kill your giant. Stop laying around. It's time to get to work. We only have so many hours of daylight. You have to know that this doesn't end with Jesus' heart troubled. It ends with him being lifted up, having completed his work. Listen to where their hearts are, though. Pick up in verse 34. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Do you hear what they're struggling with? Wait, wait, wait. We're all good with the idea of you having dignity, honor, and salvation. But what are you talking about about dying? That, that's not part of our plan, Lord. We want to get a resurrection without getting a crucifixion. We want to get a miracle without hurting for it. We want to get an anointing without praying for it. We want to be at the end without ever having to go through the middle. It was true then, and it's true Now, it is the distance between point A and B that makes you who you are as you arrive at the end. Have you been through struggles? Praise God! What would you be if you hadn't? Spoiled? Entitled? Incorrigible? What would you be if you hadn't? The more trial that you go through and He saves you from the more you begin to look like what He's been calling you since the beginning. Christ. I think I want to leave you with just a couple ideas. The first is one of my favorite psalms. Is that all right? It'll be Psalm 40. Lifted. I want you to be lifted. I'm not focused on loss this morning. I'm focused on what is gained from what you're going through. I mean, do you know the absurdity of the entire medical community has chosen what they call the caduceus? Which, this is the bronze uh, staff with the serpent wrapped around it. It's become an international sign for healing. Secular organizations everywhere use it and they don't know where it came from. It's almost like they want the result in... Don't know how to get it. I think Pastor Wade covered it in a message not long ago. No more excuses about Nehushtan. How that very thing became an idol during the time of Hezekiah, king of Israel. In other words, what had been an instrument of salvation, they had turned into a crucifix on the wall. It's incredible the way in which we float from actual relationship and daily dependence to something else. The moment that pride creeps in you and you begin 
boasting about your position, resisting those who are trying to help you, you're halfway to hell and don't know it. The place that a Christian has to remain is ever the student, always repenting, ready to learn at any moment. When you develop a critical eye to those around you, hey, and here's how you can define a critical eye. When you judge them more harshly than you have judged yourself that morning, that's a critical eye. Then we're blinding ourselves to our own condition. I want you to be lifted. I want that. I want to be lifted. That comes from embracing the struggle that you're in and seeing it. I told you to go to Psalm 40. Keep your finger there. Turn to Judges. I'm sorry, Genesis 45. I'll tell you what happens. You have a heart like Joseph. Look how Joseph viewed his struggles. Genesis 45 and verse 7. Let's recount Joseph's struggles for just a second. He, he was thrown in a hole by his brothers, right? Is that right or wrong? Okay. He, he, was, um, he was seduced by a whore. Is that right or wrong? He ran from that house naked, right or wrong? Uh, he was falsely accused of rape, right or wrong? He, he was um, put in prison and while in prison forgotten about by a wine, bibber who, or a wine bearer who should have remembered him, right or wrong? Life full of struggle and injustice. Is that true? Listen to what he says in Genesis 45, 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save lives by a great deliverance. See, he was lifted to a position. And that, that process taught him something. Everything that was meant to destroy me actually furthered me. I wouldn't have been in the prison to meet the wine bearer if I had not been falsely accused. I would not have been in Potiphar's house to be put in prison if I had not been thrown in a well. You see, he never could have got to the throne of Egypt without all the trials that took him there. He could look back upon them and say, God was at work in it. Can you look at your trials and say, God is at work in it? If you can't, it's because he's not yet at work in you. But if he's at work in you, you will see him at work in all that you do. Psalm 40. Psalm 40 verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. When you hear the word patient and then hear that he turned to him, doesn't that imply a distance between those two things? I mean, after all, if he said Lord and the Lord said yes, it didn't take much patience, huh? There was a distance between him crying out and the Lord answering him. Or else he wouldn't have had to do it patiently. Are you impatient with the Lord? Do you give him all of, I don't know, about the time from one window at Burger King to the next to redirect you? Hey, brother, did you pray about that? Oh, yeah, I prayed about it. And what that means is 15 seconds as I walked to go do it, I prayed about it. Are you patient in waiting on the Lord's direction as if you were hopelessly lost if He didn't tell you what to do? Or when you say you prayed for the Lord's direction, do you mean I already decided what I was going to do and I gave Him a chance to change my mind? Yeah, I think that that probably hits the target a lot more than you are reacting like it hit the target. Let's not forget, we know each other. I love you. You love me. 
not very loving if we let each other go our own way, both wrong. I, want, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud in the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Listen, if you were never in the mud in the mire, then you don't have the opportunity to say He freed me from it. I'm going to tell you the truth. This psalmist is David, and he wasn't in the mud and mire only once. He was in the mud and mire many times, and the Lord had to save him from it. You, you can get saved and still need salvation to be at work in your relationships. You can get saved and still need salvation to be at work in your, in your workplace. You can get saved and still need salvation to be at work in your private holiness issues. You can get saved and still need so many areas released from the mire and the muck. Are you standing in a firm place? The right place? The good place today? Do you only hope that you are? Do you know your state? The psalmist say, put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. If you are not praising God for the very situation that you're in right now, then you don't have the new song because you haven't been lifted from the mire. When you've been lifted from the mire, it shows up with a new psalm of praise in your mouth. I can say today, thank you, God, for the devastating turn of events that has happened in these last few months. I can thank Him for it because I can stand here and know for sure that I have nothing in this world but Him. Oh, that is such a good feeling. It'd be a terrible feeling if I didn't have him. I'd like to close with you from the minor prophets. In this message, we've covered the law, the prophets, the writings. We've bounced all over the New Testament. In this message, I didn't touch the book of Revelation. You can come back another day for that. But I am going to finish in Micah. In the seventh chapter of Micah, what a powerful book Micah is. And Micah 3.80 says, But as for me, I am filled with power. Man, is that how you would describe your life? Full of power? But in the seventh chapter, we see a little bit more of his struggle. Seventh chapter, eighth verse. See, Micah been knocked to his knees by the trials of life beat down, sitting in what he feels like is darkness. But something begins to lift in him. Something begins to rise in him. And he says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Oh, man. Wherever you sit, wherever your position is, you can be beat into a greasy little spot on the ground having gotten not a thing right. But the Lord is able to make His light shine in your situation. He can raise you right out of it. It's what He does. And then the very situation that was meant to overwhelm you and kill you, you will stand on top of that much taller for having been through it. Church, it's through many trials, toils, 
and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. The 14th chapter of Acts says that as an encouragement to the church. What's happening to you is not strange. James said that to all believers worldwide. We're going to squeeze Revelation in there and say this is the very thing that the book of Revelation says calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Now we've covered all six areas of the word. question is not, is this word biblically sound? I think you know it is. The question is, is your life biblically sound? Could you stand to your feet?